Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By 1991, the BBC's A Question of Sport had long been established as a national favourite, providing living rooms around the country with genuine light entertainment and enjoyable challenge by way of a cast of sporting stars from the past and present. Bill Beaumont was the team captain that enjoyed the more recognisable guests for the episode which aired on the evening of Tuesday 28th of October 1991. Up against Ian Botham's team of the British Open squash champion, Lisa Opie, for those of you who didn't know, and the then IBF world flyweight champion, Dave McCauley, Bowman was joined by the England Test bowler and future show captain himself, Phil Tufnell, and the Leeds United and Scotland captain, Gordon Strachan. By then, Strachan was already cultivating a reputation for a sharp and quick wit, at least by footballing standards, and so he would prove that evening. Which Scottish football internationalist, asked the host David Coleman, took two wickets in the NatWest Trophy? Andy Gorham took the two wickets, Strachan replied, but he didn't make any catches. The majority of those in the studio would have found it funny as a kind of generic gag about a goalkeeping colleague, a Scottish one no less, but anyone watching with a passing interest in Scottish football would have known that it was more pointed than that. Andy Gorham was having a torrid start to his time at Rangers. After telling Hibbs that he wanted to move that summer in order to win trophies, he'd already been held responsible for Rangers' elimination in two different cup competitions. The following night after that show was released, Rangers would lose 3-2 to a young Dundee United side at Tannadice, with Gorham responsible for the late winner, spilling a Darren Jackson shot straight to the feet of Duncan Ferguson and presenting him with a simple opportunity to give United both points. Gorham had always assumed that crises of confidence happened to others, not him, and yet here he was, in a maelstrom of doubt, desperately hoping that the ball would come nowhere near him during games and with his international captain making him a punchline on national television. Pressure on Andy Gorham inevitably meant pressure on Walter Smith. The ideal consistency candidate for a caretaker role in the aftermath of the soonest departure was now being questioned as the man to take Rangers on to the next level in the longer term. Smith had overseen yet another early European exit, but in the shape of Sparta Prague, he could not at the time point to undisputed quality in the way that Soonis had been able to do so with Bayern Munich and Red Star Belgrade. Even the Skull League Cup, where a Rangers appearance in the final felt as if it was part of the sponsor's contract, had been given up at the semi-final stage. Smith's big turnover of players in the summer had led to predictable early difficulties in squad cohesion and he yet to find a solution to the three-striker issue that had dogged the previous season, opting to start with Sunnis' preferred combination of Haitley and Johnson before chopping and changing every week throughout October. 
This culmination of this frustration was a touchline clash with St. Johnson manager Alex Totten, whom he replaced as assistant manager at Ibrox five years earlier, which saw both men charged under breach of the peace. Never having had this overall responsibility, he was being constantly questioned about his signings and his ability to manage them. I learned that management is a difficult game, wrote Smith three years later, and there was a brief period where I questioned my own credentials. By the end of the season, however, a national joke was on his way to becoming the greatest ever Rangers goalkeeper, the greatest Rangers strike partnership had been firmly established, and a band of brothers had been created that would go on to shape the greatest ever season in the club's history. From a position of deep doubt and great uncertainty, Walter Smith had created alchemy. To discuss the origins of that season, I'm joined by David Edgar. How are we, David? Covid accepted. Yeah, apart from COVID, I'm I'm good, thank you. Yes, it's nice to be back on, on dominant and uh, a, a a huge, huge season, huge period in Rangers history, I think, and a huge period in my life. And it's funny that I look back on this, and I I had always thought of Walter's first two years as basically this straight line mm. upwards, mm. and the reason. It felt like such a straight line upwards. I now realise when you go back and you look at things is because it started at a fairly low level with doubts and criticism and concerns and time because of the second half of that season and, of course, the complete next one. Time erodes that, but there were doubts. Uh, I, I particularly remember uh, I thought maybe Keith Wright had killed Andy Gorham's fledging mm-hmm. Rangers career and, and the fanzines at the time and the phone-ins at the time were as brutal as anything you would see in modern social media. So it'll be good to, to have a, an opportunity to discuss that, knowing as we do that it has a happy ending. It does indeed. Um, any regular listeners to the show will know that David Edgar being on means Alan Bradley joins him. How are we, Alan? Yeah, I'm really good, Martin. Yeah, and, and like David, looking forward to this one. I mean, I think as David said, what we're talking about 30 years ago. Mm. So originally you look back and you think, well, a couple of shiny things and that was fine and it kept it going. But when you actually drill down as we all go through, there are, you know, obviously kind of downs to start with and and a lot of ups. And from my point of view to Walter being in, okay, there was the, you know, managing to win the league, you know, in the four games, which was great. This was really the test in terms of establishing himself. And I always had a you know, the golden thread, you know, from Wilton, Stuth, Simon Waddle, Big Wallace, Greg, Walter Smith, now a Rangers man, you know, something coming up. And now when you look at it, as David said, this was such a kind of key season, you know, in terms of obviously how things panned out. So I'm looking forward to going through it with you guys again, yeah. Forgive me for repeating myself, but I always seem to start these shows, especially the first episode in the group of four, by saying, interesting season this, um, and then it kind of is. We know that eighty six, eighty seven is that, that. It's kind of been done to death. Next month, we, we know what's coming uh, as we we discuss ninety two, ninety three, and we, we obviously know what, what comes near the end. Um, but there's so much groundwork done here that, that prepares the way for for that 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 season of all seasons. Um, and you're right, David. It is not this linear. Uh, progression um straight to to, to that, that that treble win in, in, in near european glory um let's start in the summer because we're going to talk a lot about the summer of 1991 it was big only that the two summers that bookend the period that we're looking at here the summer of 1986 and 1998 saw more 
transfer activity than this particular summer. Five players in, five players out, easily the highest turnover of players in the close season of any that made up the nine. Um, But David Smith had very little choice because this is where Europe's um, foreigners rule really starts to, to, to take root and to start really impacting on us. It was four foreigners in 1991, 92, um, but gone well the grace period the, the grace players for rangers that would have been you know before then woods butcher wilkins walters um who had uh, uh woods and walters were still in the books at the end of that season but but the players who had been there before the summer of 88 any english players sorry would be naturalized scots they had three years out that was coming to an end there was no room for maneuver um and i guess domestic pressures put the blocks on any kind of forward plan and we needed to, to hoover up the best Scots we, we possibly could. We're going to go into to detail um, now, but just in general, that that it's not easy to do. We, we talk a lot on, on Seagulls, David, our English show about, and I'm sure we will when we, we get back in August, about clubs who have these mad summers, big, big turnover, loads of names in, loads of names out. It's really hard to get right and cohesion is shouldn't be expected in the, the early part of the season. No, absolutely, but we're football fans and we're unreasonable. And I think that increasingly we don't apply the rules, and I think it's got worse through time actually rather than better, um, but we don't apply the rules we would expect to be applied to us when we started a new job. I don't know about you, but it, it's always taken me a few weeks to to find yeah. out where things are kept yeah. and uh, what the system is in, in a workplace. And, and workplaces generally allow you that but in football they tend not to although I think that managers are a bit brighter when it comes to that it's great when a player hits the ground running but it's not automatic that they will especially in this highly tactical era that we're in at the moment when you have to learn I think uh, as we record in the summer of 2022 that John Lundstrom's a great example Mm -hmm. of that um, of a guy who clearly just didn't know at first what was going on in the Rangers midfield and you know once he once he settled in became a pivotal part of the side uh, that summer we had known about this but it still requires a bit of bravery to do it because I know the, the great cliche is that you always um, mend the roof when the when the sun is shining and it's true you should strengthen from a position of strength but what if you don't want to get rid of hmm. all the players what if it's not that you feel these guys are coming to the end of their usefulness. It's that, you know, we would play them in, in a key competition, so I'm going to have to go out there and and look for players. Now, I think that the players that were that were being brought in were very highly thought of. I think that helped. You know, they were they were players who had a reputation and who had very much been people that had impressed in the past. But equally yeah, I've I've argued, and I will to, to my dying day, that I think that in terms of selling Chris Woods for 1.2 million, bringing Andy Gorham for 1 million, and therefore having had the years of Woods making a 100% profit on him and actually making money on the deal has to go down as possibly one of the greatest transfer yeah. deals of all time. But it didn't feel like that in summer 1991. It felt that we were being parted and Woods was, along with Butcher, had been one of our shiny things, mm. our England goalkeeper, because he was now the England goalkeeper, um, undisputed after Shelton's retirement. And it felt 
like a downgrade. As much as we did like Andy Gorham, I think that's important. Andy Gorham had impressed a great deal at Hibs and he'd always been popular. I remember his first Scotland cap when he was at Oldham and he came on and the whole stadium was was chanting his name. He, he was just a likeable bloke and he had impressed at Hibs. But you're losing the England goalkeeper and you're bringing in the Hibs goalkeeper. And Rangers fans, well, they haven't changed in 30 years. <laughs> I think we'd agree we do have that slight sniffiness about buying from yeah. the, the Scottish League. And, and I would say that it was its height in this period. Unless it's a backup. Unless oh, it's, it's uh, a kind uh, of squad, uh, yeah. squad uh, filling out and, and having those kind of options, absolutely. But you would argue, let, let's talk about the first one then, which is buying Gorham and, and, and selling Woods. Probably for the first time, Alan, since Sunis's arrival, since the revolution, this felt like a backwards move in the transfer market. Because up until then, it had been more, more, more. Um, you know, we can go out and sign pretty much anyone. Uh, you know, the the you know the world's your oyster. There are no limits, um, other than Serie A. But let, let's everything seemed to to be moving in a kind of um, positive, upwardly mobile direction. And as Incredible as it is to say, because we know how this story ends, but David Wright, in the summer of 91, I don't think the the general mood amongst Rangers fans was, this is the, this is the move that needed to happen for football and reasons, and we, we've got a better goalkeeper than we had. This was seen as a, a backward step for the first time. Yeah, I would agree. And as you say, for the previous, I don't know, three or four years, continually, it was a players, yeah, were a certain standard, but... It's an upgrade. We're bringing somebody else in. And as you said, this did look... Uh, again, as David said, great goalkeeper Andy Gorham at Hibs as well, well-respected, doing well, Fergie in Scotland now and then. So, But again, I mean, Chris Woods, I mean, you said it all. I, I would say the one thing about Big Woods, though, after his illness a wee mm. bit, I didn't feel he hit the heights. It wasn't quite a Stuart Kennedy one, you know, where you know, he was doing so well. And But I think after it went down a wee bit, but my goodness, again still England goalkeeper and I think he ends up leaving us and he'll play in all the Euro Championship games as well yeah. so, th- th- so that says everything I mean uh, just on a, a general point I'm interested yeah. in both of your, your, your views here before we get, we get into again some of the specific transfers what that represented was a general thing which was Rangers because of the UEFA directive again mm-hmm. an illegal one had to be more Scottish we had to, it, what, that that summer was about kind of rediscovering a Scottish identity when really the previous four or five summers had been about shedding that Scottish identity. It had been getting not that we'd ever signed Scottish players, but they had to be super good, like like Johnson or Goff. Um, and this was about going the other way. Can you remember amongst the pubs and the buses and talking to your pals or whatever? how that felt? Was there a pride that we were rediscovering that Scottish identity or was there a kind of, hmm, that's not the way Europe's going and how are we supposed to realise these ambitions by becoming more Scottish? I think in the first couple of weeks, Martin, as you remember, we're still, obviously there was the Aberdeen game, so there was the kind of Rangers and again it was people backs to the wall and even the crowd, you know, there was Mm. certainly this renewed, we've all got to, so there was this kind of unification you know, I felt with us then when it came into this one too, there was still the feeling of, and it's Walter now, and it's Archie. So that was a positive on the balance sheet. But as you say, on the other side of it, the reason we had been bringing in these other players 
was because Europe, and I think there's even a, I think I saw one video of David Murray talking about it, and now we really need to challenge it, Europe, we need to push on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But there was definitely a sense of, yeah, these guys are going to, again, we'll be fine domestically, but I can't really see now a couple of the signings later on, like so, and we'll get into Big Nico and so on, but certainly the likes of Andy Gorham coming in, it definitely was an upgrade. It wasn't an upgrade anyway. Yeah. And I think David Robertson became a bit different again because yeah. improvement, and it was similar to Gary Stevens on the right-hand yeah. side, but yeah, yeah. David, just a general sense of maybe going back the way, because we were going back the way, we were becoming more Scottish because we had to. But that, you know, Alan's mentioned exactly there, Murray, and that, that summer, absolutely right. You know, we've done three in a row, but now we, we really need to, to, to look towards European football. It's hard to do when your your transfer ambitions are becoming more inverted rather than, than outward looking. Can you remember that sense that summer, just generally? Oh yeah, absolutely, because it was a limitation and people don't like limitations that are forced upon them uh, in general, I think. And that I, I'd sort of grown up now in this period, in this last five years, where the world was our, was our oyster and we could go out and we could sign anyone from anywhere. And that they could come in, you know, because nets of hadn't worked out or whatever. But we could look at England in particular as a, a very, very good market for us. And now we're being told actually no, players have to basically come from within the country. You basically, as it looked to me as as a small boy, was that so what we have to sing the Scotland squad now. Mm -hmm. Is that you know essentially mm -hmm. is that it? Mm -hmm. And it is a limitation, and it is a step backwards. And when you're forced into something like that against your will, when you've got the money sitting there to go out and bring in players, again, it just seemed designed, as I think was pretty clear at the time, that you know UEFA um, and FIFA were very keen on making sure certain football associations were. Um, were well represented. They knew that the English clubs were coming back into it. They didn't want a repeat of what it had been before the ban, which was the European Cup kind of heading there basically every year. Um, and this was done, if you look at the sides, who had the strongest international teams. It was Germany. It was Italy. Um, and it was very much designed for them. And I just felt that we were being punished we were being forced to to look inside, as you mentioned, it is illegal, um, and to me, it, it without an understanding of employment law or anything at the mm -hmm. time, it, mm -hmm. it it just felt limiting, and it felt like it was. You have to understand if you're younger that Serie A had the sort of dominance that the Premier League has now, and I kind of felt they had enough advantages as it was. And Within, then they had a they, they had a self-imposed foreigner limit on on domestic competition, Serie. So they were fine and, with it. And, um, so yeah, they they were yeah. they they would they wouldn't struggle basically. To me, even then, I just felt it was designed because the English clubs were coming back. They feared that, and 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 I counted us in that, you know, as a side who could mm. because at that time I did believe we could win European trophies, and. Uh, I I just felt this was their way, and I, and if people think I'm being paranoid, and I, I wouldn't say I'm the most Eurosceptic Martin person yeah. in the whole world, but um, look at what happened. The, the, I always think a good example of that: the power that, that certain countries had in UEFA at the time, when the following season, when um, 
Stuttgart, yeah. Now, any other country would have just been kicked out. Yeah. But we have this strange... Yeah, with Leeds, we have this... Oh, oh, you go and have a playoff. No, you don't have a playoff. Your your rules are very clear. If you play an ineligible player, you are kicked out of the competition. And if it had happened to any other country, bar Italy, then it would have happened. So I think that at the time, there was this sense, uh, and I think this was a punishing move, but I just, you know... To have to get rid of... And Woods, to me, was part of that. Yeah. What he represented, he represented the revolution. Mm. And he represented... Uh, you know, it just... To, to, there was a pride in having him there. You know, we've got Chris Woods, the England goalkeeper. And there he is, playing for Rangers. Look at... You know, the, the, you get a, a certain sense of... I don't know, superiority um, and, and confidence because he was a very good goalkeeper. And as I say, I liked Coram, but it did now feel that we were having to sell off the family silver and we had a very, very limited market to buy replacement cutlery. I felt also that the Mark Walters one, I know that'll be later on, but again, this was another one. Now, Butcher obviously had gone kind of previously, but again, as you say, there was just so much of you know, this revolution, we're on our way now, we're probably 70% towards, we're doing everything off the park now, we're building the stadium, and it's as if somebody just kind of pulled the rug a wee bit, you know, and it was like, you couldn't even go back and restart again because they had changed the rules. You it's know, interesting, that. that sense of the rug being pulled, and if you look at the, the transfer business, I think we've, we've kind of discussed this when talking about the three foreigners, well, four foreigners it would be in 91, 92, as if it came out of nowhere. Oh, this summer they're doing it. It, 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 it was in it effect from 1988, rug, yeah. but, but, but no, no one, no one was I, really either. Oh, well, they'll forced. change their, they'll change their mind, Aye, uh, or that. or football managers being as they are, short termists because well, oh, I might yeah. not be here in two yeah. years to to enjoy some of the the, the kind of long term planning that, that they were talking about. I need to win the next trophy at Rangers. I need to win the next game at Rangers. Um, so it's mm-hmm. we just kidded on. That it was that it was coming really, uh, and then well we, we had to also deal with it. You, you're right, Alan. We we, we go um or we would sorry that uh, he had gone through that illness the season before the last eighty nine ninety. I think he did come good in nineteen eighty one. To be honest, he, he he was pretty good. Nowhere near his earlier levels, but still yeah, yeah, still yeah. a super player. Um, but soon as had. A dear Matt Gorham, he, he had um, looked to, to do a deal for, for Andy Gorham, um, obviously before that summer, and he writes of this caper, really, in his book. Um, he doesn't name the player in his book, but he, he he's strongly hinted at it in kind of uh, his speaking engagements that it, that it is Gorham. Um, and the deal could have been done, but the player demanded 30 grand. It was like something from an Ian Rankin. Yeah, he demanded 30 grand up front. And soon as he's like a bit of a reputation, the gambler, blah, blah, blah. I didn't really want David Murray being involved in that. So I pretty much agreed for this this kind of personal loan. Agreed to meet in Edinburgh, um, near Tynecastle, actually, where his apartment was. Then he felt he'd been followed by this this motorbike up and down. Whatever street he went, this motorbike was following. Got... He managed to to lose him uh, because he, he he said he knows those streets like the back of his hand, but he lost trust in the the whole thing and and, and pulled out of it. Didn't want anything to do with it. Rangers had to take that gamble though um, because they needed mess. Scottish players and uh, and and Gorham. Let's not be yeah be coy about this. Um, you know Gorham was still well thought of. Um, he was a Scotland goalkeeper um, in in the summer of nineteen ninety one. 
But again, it, as you've mentioned, David, just just kind of getting getting rid of of such a, a key player. Um, the other sale, um, big sale, and there are a couple, uh, was Trevor Stephen um, to, to to Marseille. Now Stephen had only been there for two seasons, of course. Um, you could probably blame Graham Souness for this as well, because Marseille went to meet Souness to talk about um, a deal for John Barnes. That was their original target. Um, Souness wasn't for budging, but he suggested to Bernard Tapie that you know Trevor Stephen might be a, a player that fitted your bill. Um, and for five and a half million, Alan. Rangers could not turn down that kind of money. And I remember very acutely at the time uh, a sense of deflation because all I'd known, again, mm-hmm. is this upwardly mobile sense of Rangers, he who dares wins, Rodney, we, we can, anything is possible and we are on the up and we can buy anyone. Anyone that left eyebrows in my lifetime or my consciousness was because Graham Soonis didn't want them there. It was his agency, his decision. Maybe with the exception of Robert Fleck, actually. And we, we discussed that earlier. That was outside issues, not really footballing ones. Um, but other than that, Soonis got rid when, when, when he wanted. This was the first feeling I ever had that, oh, there are much bigger clubs out there and they can outmuscle us. And we, yeah. we have to sell when, when they come calling. Um and I was devastated when Trevor Stephen went. You mentioned you mentioned during your lifetime you'll have heard John Cowden and I going on way back yeah. to the seventies. People they, they leave Rangers when Rangers want them to go. You know, it just this just didn't happen. And as you say, I, I think what got me to with Trevor Stephen, I've mentioned in previous shows with you guys too, when he started getting into the middle as well, my God, we're talking like top class, you know. And uh, okay, you, you couldn't refuse the five and a bit million then, you know. But again, it became a bit, it was almost, it wasn't quite a selling club, but again, it really slapped us in the face if someone else can come who's bigger now. And at the time we thought, biggest in Britain, we can go to someone's coming in and they're picking this guy who'd certainly wouldn't have been, I wouldn't imagine many Rangers supporters would have went, yeah, here's someone you can let go. I think we'd have wanted to hold it, uh, hold on to Trevor Stevens. So yeah, th- th- this... Yeah, this was disappointing. I mean, I think if you think of it, the team he was going to as well, it was going over there to join me, so like Papan, Chris Waddle, Bolly, Stojkovic, Mark Libra, you know, Didier Deschamps, and so some cracking players. But from a Rangers point of view, I felt this was a big, big miss, Martin, yeah. They've just been in the European Cup final, Davy Marseille. Dreadful, dreadful game. Um, lost some penalties to Red Star Belgrade, of course. But yeah, this, this would have been... You know, the butcher thing was a bit of a shock and all of that, but I was of the opinion, young as I was, that you know the manager knows best. Again, this is our decision. I, I was, I was, I was absolutely gutted. I, I loved Stephen, and it was just this kind of reminder that all oh, right, we 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 have a a place in this pecking order, and it's not maybe not as high as I I maybe believed that it was. I think because I was a Serie A fan, I'd always known there was a higher tier. Um, and, they, and you even just need to look at the fees that they paid over there. So I'd always known there was one above. I felt we could compete with England, we'd shown that. I felt we could compete with anyone else. But Italy at the time had this ability to outbid. So I think it goes back to when Ian Gerard got injured. I remember mm. soon as saying afterwards, saying, you know, I hoped he would go mm. one day and to play in Italy because that was, you know, 
the ultimate test. That's where you went if you were a um, a superstar player. So I'd always known that. But yes, there was that feeling of, oh, this is unusual because we hadn't lost players because we hadn't wanted to in the past. We, we'd lost players because a decision was taken. They, they, they weren't always popular decisions. I remember being gutted when Terry Butcher left. Um, but we sold players because Graham Soonis decided we should sell that particular player. So all of a sudden to lose a favourite, and I loved Trevor Stephen, I think he was absolutely superb in his first his first spell at Rangers. But I, I think that I bought into the look at money, because it was a huge fee. Yeah. I mean, for, for, for Scottish football, I know that younger listeners might be going, 5.5 million, trust me, in 92, 5.5 million was a staggering amount of money. And it seemed to make sense. So I was okay with it so long as it would be reinvested, which it was, so long as we would get in more pa- I say reinvested like I was you know, conscious of these terms. <laughs> yeah. So long as we would buy more things with it. And I, I just had this sense of disappointment, but I think mentally I was aware that there was a higher tier um, at the time. And again, not really understanding economics or, or football. Like it, it always been that way, so I just assumed it always would be, you know, that yeah. oh well, Italy. Um France coming up through the rails was a bit of a surprise. But you, you mentioned Marseille had just been in a, a European Cup with Chris Waddle. Um so they've been quite high profile in the UK because of that. And again, Scottish players in the late eighties had quite often gone over to France. Bo Johnson's a mm. great example. Mm. But you know, guys like Ray Stephen at Nancy and uh, Eric Black. Mm-hmm. who you know, people might forget, Eric Black was a super player um, and, and he went off to Mets in, in France. So I think there was always the sense that this could happen, but it hadn't. So it, it was an unusual feeling, an uncomfortable one, but one I, I kind of could get my head around because of this, this upper tier. Again, though, what it meant to me was, well, as we get better, this might happen more often. Because, yeah, because mm-hmm. te- players are going to come in, teams are going to come in for our players. And obviously, as we get more successful, this this might happen. And does this mean that every season, one of our superstar players might be off to Italy, for example, might be off to Milan or to, to Juventus or whatever? So I, I, it did take a wee bit of coming to terms with, but I kind of understood the place that it came from. Yeah. yeah, David, you said the size, sorry, in the other tier as well. He actually equaled the David Platt, Etibari from Villa. So to give you an, an idea of that, five or a bit million quid, I mean, in terms of British transfers going out as well, I mean, it was massive at the time. So it wasn't even your one, two millions, wasn't it? You know, So to actually equal the British transfer record at that point going out, I mean, that said a lot, didn't yeah. it, for... The you know the size of it yeah, yeah another departure much loved and this was really his own he moved for for his own reasons although as another Englishman I think Rangers were were more than um, amenable to the to the deal with Mark Walters because he he wanted to play for England Graham Taylor had made it pretty clear that doing the biz against Aberdeen wasn't going to cut any mustard so uh, he left um, to Liverpool. To, to be with Graham Soonis again, which 
rankled a wee bit. Um, but David Woods, Walter, Stephen, these are three three Englishmen, of course, three foreigners now, um, but three favourites. I mean, genuine, you can maybe lose one of those in a summer and it, it, it kind of stings, but, but those are three really beloved Pivotal. players. And it felt that way. I think we'd been used to a high turnover of players under Sunis. Um, we all joke about it, but he did like to bring somebody into the dressing room every kind of two, three months. And you were used to players, but there were certain ones that seemed to be above that. You know, certain guys that, crown jewels if you like, that, that weren't to go. Uh, losing Walters um, was, was a huge blow because he was one of those players that no matter your age, he was thrilling and he was consistent and he had that lovely habit of doing it in old firm matches which, uh, or against Aberdeen so uh, it, it was a lot to take in what I would say is that there was a sense of the new at the, and I've spoken about this and I know you've touched on it in your book but going from you know the 80s to the 90s there was a whole sense of new and building up to the millennium and, and all of that kind of thing and I think that there was a freshness about the place because of the players that are coming in um, and the names, and more importantly, the fees spent. Mm. I, I remember doing a, a show with uh, Stuart Monroe, and he said that he stayed throughout his whole time uh, when Sunis kept buying left-backs. He said, because of the fees paid, because I thought, no, I've got a chance. He said, when Rangers paid a million quid for David Robertson, I went, no, I'm, I'm leaving because they'll play him. You know, they have to play him at that particular fee. So I think the fact that you couldn't argue that within the parameters that we've discussed, ambition was being shown and that they were trying to get in. And of course, if you look at, I believe the total fee combined for Gorham and David Robertson was 1.97 million. And if you can find me five Rangers fans out there who think that that wasn't (laughs) a really good spend of that money, then then well done. And this is a Uh, a really interesting thing. Uh, As much, again, all all I have is old follow-follows, old um, tabloid hotlines. Uh, It was an emotional wrench. But there was an acceptance and a, a quiet confidence at the start of the season that Rangers had actually done really good business. And some of the best business, David, was in one of our, our biggest uh, recruit that summer from Serie A. I know we'd, we'd bought players from Serie A before, but in Graham Soonis and Trevor Francis, fair to say, weren't at the peak of their, their career. Um, £2 million spent on Alexa Mikhailichenko from Sampdoria. The winners and Serie A champions at that time. Excellent, yeah. Um, that, that uh, I'm interested in your, both your thoughts on, on Miko Davy because I know you're, you you were and still are a, 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 a Serie A fanboy. Losing Stephen, losing that class, um, somewhat assuaged by this signing because this was a... This was big kudos to Rangers, Murray in particular, that we were able to, to, to get a player like that. Um, had impressed at the, you know, the, the Euros in 88 um, yes. um, and, and with Kiev, Kiev and, and, and now this part of this Serie A winning Sampdoria team for two million quid. And we've sold you know our player for, for more than double that. Um, we're doing this transfer market thing, right? And Murray was very good at 
at letting you know that. <laughs> yes, you know he, he he was out there and he was saying those those express you know expressly overtly he was saying we've just brought in the captain of Sampdoria which he was which to this day knowing what we know about Miko puzzles me. Um, but I'll always remember incidentally that the Scottish son I can't remember the journal but he's out there said um, he's been compared to Brian Robson. That. <laughs> In the, the fact worst comparison. Both, yeah. I, 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 it must have been the fact that they both liked to drink. Um, <laughs> I, my dad had a, a theory about Mikhailichenko that he dropped a pound coin in one of his earliest matches at Ibrox around the halfway line and then spent the rest of his career looking, looking for it. Um, outrageously talented footballer who, like a lot of guys who were just coming out of the former uh, Soviet bloc, yeah. Were, you know, they, they got a whole lot of freedom at once and they were determined that they were going to enjoy it. But um, at the time, the stature of this guy was huge. As you say, a superstar player, a world superstar, absolutely no doubt about it. You'd seen him at these big tournaments. That mystery, that air of mystery mm. that still existed in football then because you couldn't watch every single match from every single league Um you know, you would you would get. I I got an hour of Serie A highlights a week from my uncle who would tape them for me mm-hmm. on fledgling cable shows, right? So you you know you got goals or whatever, and and even then that made me probably a wee, you know, massively more lucky than most people. Um, but so this guy's coming. He's got the the reputation. He's got the the and and players simply didn't leave Serie A at the top of their career. They perfectly illustrated by the two guys you mentioned there, Sunis and Francis. A, they wanted back to Britain, and B, they were in their 30s. Yeah. Liam Brady was another one when when he left uh, Serie A, he was in his 30s, and he goes to West Ham. Doesn't go to a top English side. Yeah. So, the, the it, it just didn't happen. People who had been successful, and Miko was successful in, in Italy. People who were successful in Italy did not leave at the top of their at the top of their career. So you bring in this huge name, and he, you know, more <laughs> literally, but you bring in this huge name, a guy we all knew, a guy we'd you know seen play for Kiev and Sampdoria, a guy that we'd um, watched at, at World Cups and at, at Euros in particular, as you mentioned, Euro '88, and to then bring him in. I think was a, a comfort blanket of okay, we might not be able to buy many of these guys mm, because of this rule, but we can buy them, and therefore we'll just pick the quality ones and we'll put that in. And then you do have Murray using the media well, which he did, to say, look at this, look at what we've done here. We've just basically replaced and we've made a profit on this, which means we'll go back into the market next year. That's how we're going to do this, you know, go ahead, dynamic. There was a freshness, there was an energy, and I think that there was a, an immense trust in the Rangers' support that I think would actually get too much and I think became, yeah. first of all, deferential. And mm. then it became not only sh- you know do we not criticise, we actually get upset if anyone yeah, does. And I think that allowed mistakes to happen. But at that time, trust in David Murray, trust in the way Rangers were run, was huge, was absolutely massive. And again, and I can't, I, I can't get this across enough to to younger listeners. This is the era of no transfer windows, right? This is the era of players coming in and out of all clubs. There was a sense of, well, we've got money, so if it doesn't work, it was buy somebody else. Um, I remember at the time hearing on on a phone in uh, a non-old firm fan say. 
the fundamental difference between Rangers and Celtic fans after a defeat. Celtic fans say sack someone, Rangers fans say buy someone. someone yeah. and, and that's where this comes from. So there was a sense of, well, if he doesn't work out, we'll buy somebody else. You, you know, uh, we, had, we felt like we had this room to manoeuvre. Yeah, you touched on something I think very important there, David, just within the, the realms of the, the new rules as, as they were this summer. Um, that, yeah, we won't have loads of these players anymore because we can't, we, we can't play them all. But we'll have good ones and it'll be more concentrated. But I think what you get then and what we will see throughout the 90s is well, we have him and we have him day something. And that does not quite mean that they're integrated into a, a, a kind of working system, as we will find out. Alan, just generally on, on the Miko signing and the, the, the statement that 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 made um, in response to losing someone like Stephen, um, or potentially losing someone like Stephen. I think Miko might have been in in the door first, but uh, clearly the Stephen thing was was certainly on the cards, um, because as David said, this isn't a journeyman at the end of his career. Although he may well have had the mindset that his career was already over <laughs> and he was just coming to put his feet up. We were we were excited, you know, and and he was welcomed. I mean, you're talking it was like four Soviet leagues, three Soviet cups, cup winners cup, as David said, go and win Syria as well. And obviously we knew of him internationally in Dynamo Kiev, so definitely was. I think the kind of the question I had was, what is he doing? Is he replacing someone? You know, it's not a like for like. Although we ended up playing him on the left-hand side, he yeah. wasn't really that kind of player. He's not exactly like kind of Trevor Stephen, you know, kind of holding. But he was just such a wonderful player. One of those guys, if you remember even as a kid, you're playing football, you look over and you can spot them. Oh, he's walking, you go, he looks apart. Miko was the opposite. He walked mm. onto the park and you're thinking, geez, oh. But what he could do in terms of his passing, and actually it was pretty good two-footed as well. Yeah. But he was just such an intelligent player. And normally we talk about cult players and it's a kind of laughing at them, you know, Sibo or whoever it would be. But to me, he always struck me as a kind of cult player, but he was just a top-class player. In fact, hands up, I know we're a bit more sophisticated, but I think Miko was my password, the computer at, you know, the office when it all started. Yeah. So I just loved the guy. I what, just his name? Because that would be quite impressive. Not, David, I struggled to do. Listen, writing a book and having to reference Alexei Mikhailichenko is a pain uh, in the ass. No, that would be pleasant. Um, I'm going to tell great. my favourite my Miko story. Um, we were playing St Johnston at McDermott Park, uh, not this season, a couple of seasons on it, and he was in the bench with Ian Gerrard. Right, yeah. Walter Smith sent the two of them out at the time, two subs sent them out to warm up. And Ian Durant did six full pelt laps of the half, you know, hour half, if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. He bolted up and down. Miko stood up, stretched, yawned, and then waited at the halfway line to come on. You couldn't not love him. I mean, to the point where I think it's in one of, you'll remember this, Martin, in one of the the season review videos where it, John Brown is asked about him by Andy Cameron, who was the host, and he said, well, actually, I don't think we get enough out of him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you could say that because he could do it and he would do these extraordinary things every so often. He, he was like a uh, he, he was like a, a disinterested girlfriend that every time you were just losing the head would do yeah, something yeah, to yeah. remind you why you loved her. <laughs> um, that's that's yeah. exactly it, Wimiko. Um but we'll get into his uh, uh what what he, what he could do um in due course. Um one upgrade 
uh, and this happened very late because the Stephen deal went pretty much went into the start of the season um, but it did go over the line um, and two games had gone by the time we signed Shoot McCall from Everton uh, again another one that made perfect sense um, Scottish player and had been very good at Everton been very good for Scotland in the World Cup the summer before and scored in fact a lot of energy a lot of bustle could pop up with a goal could break things up and Terry Hurlock went the opposite way not to Everton but, but back then south I think it's fair to say Davey that 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 was an Anglo trade-off that I think we were probably happy with. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody was um, fooling themselves about what Terry Harlot was, right? So I don't think that, you know, he was cult hero, etc. Everyone liked him, but he was a limited footballer. There's, there's no doubt about that. McCall had this, uh, again, in an era where you don't watch somebody every week. He'd popped up with a few high-profile moments. Um, the FA Cup final, the Hillsborough year, mm-hmm. which actually really starts his Everton career. He was struggling a wee bit, but he comes off the bench and he scored twice. Now, at the time, you know, the FA Cup final was an enormous thing. Uh, and that particular one, you know, in 89, was, was just enormous. So he had those, then he scores that goal for Scotland at the World Cup. Scotland scoring at a major tournament is quite a real Yeah, against Sweden. Um, against Sweden in a huge victory. And again, I think we really, um, we liked him. You know, we, we definitely could see the, the attraction in Stuart McCall. Um, you you could you could see it. I mean, for me, I I felt he would do for us what Spackman had done, even though they were, they were different players, operated in roughly the same area at the pitch. Yeah. But I, I felt he could take that particular role. I'd never really felt Terry Harlock a first team player, if no. that makes sense. I'd always felt of him as as a as a fill in, you know, as a back second tier. And I felt that McCall I, I would prove to be correct, wouldn't wouldn't be that. Um but he had he had a good profile at that time. And that helped when, when you were signing a player because as I say, people couldn't say whereas now we can go and we can look at someone and make a judgment. Uh, very quickly uh, back then you couldn't you didn't have reams of footage available to you so reputation was good in terms of buying getting the player the buy-in at the start that they need um and it's funny actually martin you and i were at nasa and one of the guests was david robertson yeah. and he talked uh, i asked him at, at q a what, what was it like you know back then to walk in from rangers because you were at aberdeen who as we've discussed on this show where our our biggest rivals at this point. I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to say. Uh, and he said, I was terrified. He said, because Rangers, he goes, it was like joining a different league. He said, even, you know, coming down from Aberdeen. He said, um, Aberdeen wanted to sell them, but they had to go through that ridiculous pantomime, you know, of it's the player's fault. He said, so they took his car off him. Uh, you know, his, his sponsor car. He says, you know, there were reserve players had won. Mm. He says, I go to Rangers. He goes, and it wasn't even much of a car. Yeah. He goes, but it was at least free. He says, I get to Rangers and day one, they're like, ah, right, um, phone this and you can go and get your car. He's like, all right, what kind? And anyone you want. <laughs> and he's like, okay. Um, he said, and I walked in and, and he said, I was terrified. Jimmy Bell said to him, um, there's your training gear. Your number is number six. By the way, the last guy who had that was Terry Butcher, so don't fuck this up. Mm. Uh, and he said, he goes, I was genuinely, he says, the type of person I am, if I'd have got off to a bad start, he said, I worry if I'd have been able to, to mm-hmm. cope with it. But of course, we won 6-0 in the first game and, 
you know the fans the fans immediately see what he can bring to the club. But this was a one million pound signing from a team that had been up at the top end of the table, and he feels coming to Rangers is like going to a completely different level. What he said to me he says it just it felt like coming out of the lower divisions. Just the way everything was done, just the way everything was run, just the size of the club. And that is maybe the concern that we've had these huge characters, you know, the Butchers and mm-hmm. Trevor Francis. You mentioned Trevor Francis. You, we, we were bringing in all these guys who had these enormous reputations, and now we're bringing in a different type of player. So to go back to an earlier point, that settling in period, yeah. something we hadn't really, because Sunis never expected it. He would bring somebody in for three months, yeah. come in, do me a turn, and then I'll sell you again. Yeah. So it's it's a completely new era. And, and David Robertson was actually a Sunis signing. Um, it was done. It was agreed. Uh, he, you know, Robertson knew he was mm-hmm. leaving the, the season before. Uh, the fee was settled by tribunal, um, a fee of nearly a million quid, and... I think Robertson talks about feeling the pressure when David Murray said, well, you better be fucking worth it. Um, <laughs> uh, but this, uh, there wasn't much consternation about this one. If anything, I know you love Stuart Monroe, Davey, and listen, club servant, he, he did a turn. But I think left back was probably the one area of the yeah. park throughout the soonest era that we hadn't quite fully no. upgraded to that that kind of level and he tried to and get I, Stuart Pierce and Tony DeRigo and and, and, yeah. and all sorts he just hadn't quite managed to do it no. whereas I don't think even though he was coming from a Scottish club I think everyone knew that this boy was, was probably the best I player in the country I loved David Robertson um, I, so that if somebody had to replace Sir Stuart um, then David Robertson was the ideal fit every time I'd seen him play for Aberdeen I thought Oof. You know, Clark, because Clark he, yeah, yeah. he was he was the closest I'd seen in Scotland to Gary Stevens, mm-hmm. in that he had that modern thing of he didn't see it as his job was to just hang back and clear the ball. Basically, he was quick, and that was one thing I think that Rangers defence at times lacked. You know, you'll go off and butcher terrific player. They're not renowned for their speed. Monroe wasn't a speedster, um, and again, he was he was young. I, I remember at the time, my dad saying to me, that's a future captain. Now, it didn't work out that way because mm. it turned out during the spell we didn't need another captain. But he was such a terrific attacking player in an era where that was just beginning to be a thing. And then, of course, when Loudrop signs, then, my goodness, then suddenly yeah. you've got this wonderful combination that, that people often forget and, and maybe downgrade Davy Robertson's part in that. But... He, he he was often involved in moves with Loudrop and created a lot of space mm. for Loudrop, which is key. And, and that allowed a guy who normally had two or three players on him to just find that bit of room. But I, even at the time, I thought, I remember thinking a million quid for him was a bargain. Yeah, um, yeah David, even, even linking, yeah, linking up with Hooster as well, even in this particular yeah. season. He was just, a, was just yeah. a quality player. And also, one of the things I really like about David Robertson is the, the Scotland thing. Mm-hmm. Where he said, "I'm not getting dragged about to, to, play, to not play. play, um, play if you if you want to, I and he was spot on. If you want to play me, pick me, fine. But I'm not going to Moldova for two weeks um, to to train. And he got criticised for that, but I think that was absolutely the correct thing to do. Um, over and above his football career, he, he, you know, as he said himself, he had a young family, mm-hmm. and he didn't want to be constantly going away to to not even get a game. Yeah. But he was." 
just a super player. And again, you know, we're, we're kind of fortunate. Can you imagine a three foreigners rule now? I think our European adventures would <laughs> be somewhat. At least there was this quality out there that could be picked up. Mm-hmm. Alan, you, your thoughts, your recollections in the sign of both McCall and Robertson, who I think we can probably agree where where upgrades and where we're you know genuinely the best that Scotland could probably provide for for those those positions, given that now we needed to find the best that Scotland could possibly. Yeah, provide. I, absolutely. I mean, Stuart McCall, I think as you said, compared to Terry Horlock, you know, best of luck, you know, but Stuart McCall. Head and shoulders. I actually think even uh, above Nigel Spikeman too. I know he brought a lot, but not to oh. me, sure. Well, that, that's my opinion, you know. But mm. no, I thought Stuart McCall. I th- um, I, I, I'll call it a tie. Okay. Yeah. Some of his passing as well, I think, is yeah. very underrated. He puts it's quite a good few important goals as well. And but anyway, I love Stuart McCall. Absolutely brilliant. Heart of a lion. Usual kind of cliche. Uh, David Robertson as well, and again I loved uh, Stuart Monroe, I thought he was great up that left hand side, even with the kind of time with Cooper and so on really great servant, but no, David Robertson, and it did, it gave us that balance, even an old Rangers uh, now you were suddenly get full backs and I was used to them, they've got to obviously defend, mm-hmm. and if they get over the halfway line, fine Sandy was an exception, but now we've got two, we Gary Stevens down the right and with David Robertson no, I, I just thought they were you know, it's a cracking addition to, to our squad and our team as well, Martin, yeah. Because they could defend. You know, both aye, of the, the guys we've mentioned, they, they, they had growing up that era. It wasn't like, you know, we're not talking this kind of modern thing where you say the defending is the weakest part of the game. Both of them were it. How many times did David Robertson through cut his time just and, cut yeah. across and, and be the recovery player? Um, yeah. And it's not luck, it's what he was in the team to do. So, no, I think, you know, two, two good bits of business. Well, you're talking about NASA, David, where you were lording it up at the top table at the, the Memorial Ball dinner. Um, I was at the WAGS table beside next, Mrs. Robertson. Next to, next to Ethel Smith, I was. Yeah. Uh, that's who I was. Uh, that was who my dinner. Oh, yeah. well, my, my dinner date was, was, was Mrs. Robertson. She was very, very kind, and we had a great chat. Um, but Andy Gray's wife kept referring to, you know, where are you two living now? How long have you been here? Kind of thing. I think she thinks we are. We're married, but um, we had to we had to kind of put it right. Um, right. Besides having to rebuild half a team, Davey, uh, Walter Smith's biggest problem as this season dawned was the same one that Graham Soonis had wrestled with, self-inflicted, I guess, the the season before, which was this attacking triumvirate and how to to play them um, and how to use them and who who comes in, who doesn't. Um, McCoy had suffered another kind of pre-season um, with injury. Uh, finally had a hernia diagnosed, got it treated, but he was a couple of weeks behind. But even then he writes in his book um, around that time, actually, that, that he expected to start that first game against uh, St. Johnson, but he pulled a thigh muscle in training. I'm not sure I quite believe that, but Smith went with um, Hately and Johnson anyway. Um, I think he would have gone with that, to be honest, um, in any event. And they... They filled their boots, and you know McCoy. did. McCoy had said, you know, he's back on the bench, back reprising that role. Of the judge, he said, you know, I'm coming up for 29. Couldn't afford another season like the previous one. I had to first team football for the sake of my career, although I didn't want to leave Rangers. Uh, I would have to start thinking about, you know, taking that seriously. I told him that despite all the problems I had, uh, I'd, you know, never said that to his, his predecessor. Um, but McCoy's issue was, you know, 
Smith, <laughs> he's getting it right. I mean, Johnson and Haley, the Rangers scored 24 goals in the first five league games and two Skull Cup games, 13 yeah. of them coming from Johnson and Haley. They absolutely enjoyed themselves, especially that first uh, day win against St. Johnson. Um, big Haley. Um, Looking as if that that final day uh, salvation against Aberdeen had really kickstarted his Rangers career. David he scored three, Johnson scored two. Um, away we go. I'm going to use a, a little bit of Ramsey uh, uh, Ramseyan, I suppose <laughs> would be the phrase logic here, which is we're a great believer in turning points, aren't we? That there's one moment, and it's easy with Mark Hatley say that Aberdeen game, but of course. Turning points are usually just a, a very obvious representation of something that was already happening. With that said, Mark Haitley turns up with a new haircut, the mm-hmm. longer hair, and all of a sudden is just... I think he knows now I'm fully fit enough for the yeah. pre-season and I'm settled. And Mark Haitley is is suddenly what we all think of now when we think of as Mark Haley, noticeably right from the start of that season. He had been playing well and getting goals towards the tail end of the, the previous year as he got fitter. But I do think just the confidence in his own mind of I'm fully fit and I've had a pre-season and I'm good to go. And I'm number one choice, incidentally, because as you've touched on many times on this show, it was Haley and one. Yeah. It wasn't McCoy Johnson or Haley. It was Haley and whoever. So you're absolutely right. He just he just starts that season and he doesn't let up for about four years. Just absolutely <laughs> terrific. This combination of elegance and violence, this guy battering centre-backs, outpacing them when yeah. he's needed to do, holding the ball up, laying it off, terrorising them at set-pieces, lovely finish. He's the complete striker all round. And he knows how good he is, Mark Cately. He always has. But he's confident to take the bus. And I think like a lot of footballers, if they're not fully fit, and their body isn't doing what they tell it to do. It drains their confidence a bit. His body was doing, and now he was he was here, and he was he, he felt like he owned the stage. And when yeah. Mark Haley felt like he owned the stage, then he did. This must seem of all the stuff we talk about of back in the day to our younger listeners, this huge problem of having three great players <laughs> for two positions, yeah. I think must sound like the strangest of all. Three internationals, David. Three well, eh? brilliant yeah. players, not for one position. This is not like having three left-backs, right? This is three strikers for two roles, okay? It must have, well, rotate them, you know, or pick and choose, or, you know, one's a sub. It, it wasn't like that, guys. Back then, you didn't, you had two players for the position, and usually a youngster or a an acknowledged, you know, a Paul Ride out type mm-hmm. John backup. John Spencer, yeah, Gary McSwagan would take yeah. the role. You didn't have three internationals. You didn't have three quality players. I think that we, we're going to have to embrace a truth which we don't particularly like because we're Rangers fans. If you're a Rangers fan of our age and above, Ali McCoyst is... God, uh, Ali McCoy's the footballer. He was mm-hmm. then, incidentally. Mm-hmm. Both Sunnis and Walter rated Mo Johnson higher than him. It's that simple. Because when push came to shove, they always went for him. Now, 
what happens is, Martin, you touched on this in the last show, McCoy's very cleverly uses his time away yeah. to tune his game to be the perfect partner for Mark Haley. Yeah. Right? And by the end of the season, as you say, he has that. And Walter is not as dogmatic as soon as. Walter doesn't say, no, 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 because I have decided that it's Haley and Johnston, I my mind cannot be changed. Walter goes, ah, all right, you know, look at this. Uh, this is clearly a combo and sells Johnston. I don't think that happens under Sunnis because I think Sunnis, once he'd made up his mind, felt it was a sign of weakness to go back. I think, though, we do have to be honest and say that when it, at the starting point for both of these managers, their decision, it was not Ali Mc, he was number three in that pecking order. And I think it's to his credit because if he just kept going, Ali McCoy was a wonderful striker as he was then, and he would have gone to another club and scored lots of goals. But he didn't sit there and feel sorry for himself. He learned Mark Hartley's game inside out. It wasn't by luck that there... Yes, there's a bit of a click. There's a chemistry. Of course there is, right? But look at the amount of great striking partnerships Ali has. Robert Fleck, Bo Johnston, um, Mark Hartley. It's not luck. Ali was a very selfless player in that he would alter his game to whoever he played with because he knew ultimately that would lead to more goals and lead to more success. But not all footballers, I think, are built that way. I think he had the the better attitude as well. Ultimately, he had the resilience, he had the, that's fine, I'll bloody show you each time, each challenge. Um, Now now and again, he had his his moments, he did have his huffs, he did have his petted lips, but but he he got there. He got there in the end. But but over the the period, I think he's, like David said, it wasn't a case of Okay, he had a couple of blips and so on, but ultimately he did. He went back and he improved and improved. And what you'll see ultimately here, your big guy, wee guy, because when obviously we more go, and funny enough, his attitude maybe just was a wee bit more suspect than Ali's because he was wanting to play regularly, you know. Yeah. But I think ultimately the, the Haley one fully fit with McCoy. And you'll see his goal scoring record over the next. Is just phenomenal, you know. That, that, that's for that's for next week because the the, the, the narrative that McCoy starts that League Cup game at Tynecastle, scores that brilliant goal, and is never in mm-hmm, the team mm-hmm. isn't true. Um, there's there's a lot of mix and match and, and Smith yeah, doing yeah. exactly what you said, Davy, and, and trying this and that, and he we, he didn't have the same forward selection. I think one game. Um, to the next throughout September, October um, a lot of because of injury by the way but but also wasn't quite settled he would become settled um, but uh, that that's for next week Alan, on Haley and that, that opening day was there a connection between that day and the last game you saw at Ibrox the, 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 the 2-0 win over Aberdeen that oh this guy's here now, he's a thing Aye, there, there was I, I think even if you go back the year before it, you know when he came to us I remember I said, played Man United, I think, a friendly. Mm-hmm. Some guys were giving them abuse, and I'm like, hold on. The guys come back from injury. You don't get all these caps and play where you had. So uh, the player was in there. It took, as David said, probably that year to get to where he was. There was obviously the boost from the Aberdeen one, but he came out of the traps. And as you say, that one in particular, the, the whole, that acceleration, it just looked like uh, the guy that we thought we were going to get initially you know, if he'd been 100% fit then, because you'll see this one, and we'll talk about, I would imagine, other games too, where against Scottish, you see the Scottish defences and all that, it was just a different class altogether. As you see, whether they wanted to fight, he could do that. Whether he wanted to outpace them, and again, his link-up and his intelligence with other players. So 
as far as I was concerned, at that point in time and over the next couple of years, you were really seeing Hayley at his top. Yeah, I think this opening to this season is indicative of what we're going to see. Mm-hmm. None more so than at, than at Parkhead at the end of August. Now, at Celtic Park, Celtic Park, uh, at Celtic, Park. Liam Brady was now in charge. Um, and hopes were high, of course, of a new era. Uh, if only could hold on to Paul the Maestro McStay. Um, now, with McStay and Collins, John Collins, that is, Celtic did have a kind of ball-playing capacity in the middle of the park, but the fading light of Charlie Nicholas could not be reignited. The, their big summer signing was Tony Cascarino from Aston Villa, effectively Celtic's answer to Hately, and he was a disaster. Uh, with only four goals that season, he was eventually exchanged for Chelsea's Tom Boyd in the February. On that final day of August, there was no question as to who the real deal was. This is Coyne. That was well read by Goff. On the call. Here's Hately. in the clear. It's a great chance for Rangers. Hately against Bonner. Brilliant play from Hately. Rangers take the lead. 35 minutes to the match gone. Ecstasy there for Hately. The first real error in defence by Celtic through the middle. One pass. One pass beat the Celtic defence. Gillespie misjudged it. White couldn't get there quickly enough. But just look at the composure of Hately here. It's played on well by Hately for Johnston. Here's Hately again, switching to his left foot. It's a second for Rangers. It's Mark Hately once again. And Pat Bonham is utterly dejected. Well, the celebrations go on among the Rangers supporters. The goal came right out of the blue. Some great forward play involving Hately initially with a head flick. Then Johnston with a return pass. There'll be an inquest here about how Hayfield is allowed to get onto his better foot, the left. And then Pat Butler will undoubtedly believe he should have saved that. 2-0, David. Uh, 2-0 at Parkhead. I mean, these comfortable wins at Parkhead were, were not something we were used to. You know, as soon as his team had, had uh, started to, to, to grab a couple of big, important 1-0s, 2-1s or whatever. Um, but Hayley's first goal, just he- before half-time... If, when you watch it back, it's just a piece of film. It's early on in the 90s, but it could sum up the old firm battle of the decade immediately. Tommy Coyne's easily dispossessed by Richard Goff, feeds it to Stuart McCall, who is in acres of space in the middle of the park. Brilliant through ball, caught out Celtic's other summer signing, Gary Gillespie, um, leading just a scandalously high line. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous. And Hately suddenly in the clear of the chase and Derek White, but this power sheer power uh, and acceleration takes him away uh, from White he's got a coolness of mind just to round Bonner on this roasting hot afternoon uh, and roll it into the net where, where White kind of ends up tangled into the, the, the net in a kind of mess um, and this celebration running right up the parkhead touchline fist clenched was just this display of power um, and superiority so early in a season um that goal for me, uh, we'd see it from Hately, we'd see it maybe from Loudrop as well um, uh, throughout the decade, but that mixture of our power and precision against their utter calamity, um, that's the story, that's the story of the 1990s for me. Yes, it is, and again, not to to belabor the point, although I do think it bears repeating, 
this is now Mark Cately. This is now Mark Cately's territory. And he would spend an awful lot of this decade running away from Celtic players <laughs> who, who couldn't get near him. And I suspect Strongly at times didn't really want to <laughs> because it wouldn't end well for them. Um, it's a lovely finish, but you're right about the quality of the goal all in. Gary Gillespie, that's an interesting one because Liverpool, that Liverpool team, when you look back on it, it had its three or four superstars and a lot of... Um, you know, your, your Sammy Lees and your Steve Nichols and whatnot. Um, they were a bit like Manchester United. Do you remember? Clubs would always go and buy some of these Man United players thinking, well, they were at Man United, so they must have been good. Um, John O'Shea or Wes Brown or uh, Jason Park. And they would be absolutely disastrous because they were cogs in a machine and you took them out of that. And it makes sense on paper, doesn't it? But again, that's the difference between our transfers and theirs. There's Stuart McCall brought in because we have a specific need and a role. And Alan had mentioned earlier a very good passer of the ball, which he demonstrates here. Um, but I just think that, that there was a sense with this Rangers side of we knew where we wanted to go. And there's a couple of hiccups in the early stages of the season before we get there. But we knew what we wanted to play like. We knew how we wanted the side to look. We knew who we were to feed and how to feed them. And... As the, the sense grows and we go into the 44-game run and it's the European campaign the next year, you're right with that Band of Brothers thing as well. All of it converges because we have a plan. We know what we want to be and we're signing players. Don't always work out, touch on Nico, but we know what we want to do. Celtic are entirely reactive, really up until Burns comes. Celtic are entirely reactive and it's about, well, we'll sign our player. And again, I mentioned Manchester United are very much a, an example of this at the moment. Well, look, we've bought a couple of good players. See, on paper, Gillespie and Cascarino are good players. Good but you're not signing... Yeah, at, at Liverpool, at, you know, goal scorers in England. But you're not signing them because, I mean, they don't play with the target man. They never have. They've no culture of it. They don't know what the hell they're doing with it. Um, and, you know, people always say Cascarino was a disaster. He was, he said, but he could never understand why a club would sign him and then not put crosses into him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's a legitimate shout, to be honest. It's it just the difference between two sides. One who know who they are, where they are and where they want to go and build to that. And Rangers wouldn't always be like us under Murray, right? I mean, so, you know, but at this point we were. And a, a side who don't know who they are, well, they've got a big target man, and that works. So we we we'll, we'll get one of them as well, and that'll you know help. And uh, you know they've they've got a centre half that that's come up from England and done well. So we'll we'll sign one of them as well. And you're you're right in terms of if you want to look into a rep a visual representation of of how it would go. This is it for me because it is just that Mark Cately. I am bigger, faster, stronger than you, and I have got more ability than you have, and I am incredibly confident that I will be able to defeat you in any particular challenge. And that sense, and again, Martin, to to quote one of your oft-quoted phrases, but it's so true, you've then got in this Rangers team a good mix of lieutenants and officers and workers, which you need. You can't have too many of one or the other. I think you do have a good mix of that. But you also have the special players. We worried about that when Walter's left. We mentioned that. You'd now have a mix of guys that the rest of the team, when it does get tricky, when it does get a struggle, can go, we'll be all right. 
because he's there. And if if I can just keep doing my job, then he'll do something special and win us the match. And that, I think, would also be a theme of the 90s. Alan, the second goal, quite rudimentary, really, and I guess just a big punt from Gorham. Um, but Johnson and Hately, a couple of headers between them, and then Hately just you know sweeps Excellent. the ball onto, yeah. showing again why this is the combo um, at this particular time. I imagine you were there that day, roasting hot. I mentioned earlier, you know, Celtic have beaten us three 0 two 0 only you know what five six months beforehand. When mm-hmm. Souness's Rangers had gone to Parkhead, um, they, they, they were narrow wins. There are a few of them actually starting to to, to rack them up, but um, they, they, they were narrow wins. This was a walk in the park, and how how different did that feel? It's just so much better, as you say. Even the first time under Souness, the Celtic missing the penalty at the end, and you know, I had periods of like nine years or what. You know, we were always going, but this one. It was 2-0 going on, yeah. 3 or 4. Can you remember I, the last time you'd gone there and watched the Rangers win that comfortable? Oh, it's, uh, to be honest with you, I can't before yeah. that. Because when the ones previously to that, there wouldn't be two goal yeah. wins. Wouldn't Obviously, falling on the years after that, it became more and more frequent. Mm. But, oh no, in fact... Not that decade. I don't no, think no. Not even in, even no, in the 70s. Might be wrong. Even in the seventies as well, it'd be like two ones, you know, and things that were beating them there, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah, we won nice stuff. And Martin, you mentioned there, and I, I'd like to mention, even though it is only a couple of months, it felt even then like completely different eras. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. To me, um, I, mm. I just, I, I did just feel, and, it, and it's that, you know, there's the power of the summer reset. There's the way that the previous season had ended, and all that drama. But those, those matches against them. Both them and us feel like things have changed already, that we've gone up and they've gone backwards. And there was a sense of kind of desperation, I think, at Parkhead, as they realised that as well. And there was a sense at Rangers of, you know, anything is possible. We had our difficulties, we're through that, still the league champions, et cetera, et cetera. So even though those games are just a few months apart, in terms of, you know, in time. It seemed <laughs> um, like years between it, them, it, didn't it? It did, it did. And I mean, I know looking back, it's easy to feel that way, but it felt like that at the time. It just felt like two completely different eras. Can you remember David Big Hately's first goal when he shoots and quite goes in? But I, I remember seeing that in the replay of the TV and right away they're singing, it's a grand old... You know, the usual... Mm. It was as if the Celtic fans just hadn't got it yet. They were still... Do you know what I mean? They were still kind of lost in Celtic faithful through and through, you know, and it was like, rather than going, oh shit, we are so far, it was as if they were in denial. It's I okay. think you know, for uh, both sides, um, we've been guilty of this. We were guilty of this um, really, you know, up until we've come back to be Rangers mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. That when you're that far away, you delude yourself that your side is better than it is, but is underperforming. Um, and you delude yourself that the other side is not very good and overperforming, and therefore the gap is actually bridgeable quite quickly. If only the players will up yeah, the game, yeah. if only a, a certain signing comes in, then the gap can be bridged. If only the other teams in Scotland will just get their finger out against the opposition. That's th- this is where they were right then. They had this massive overrate of their own side because they were a mess. I mean, the squad is a disaster. 
and they had a massive underrating of ours. I mean, I, I remember on phone-ins back then, Team CR Rangers are just a long ball mob. You know how Celtic, have got, <laughs> Celtic especially then, had this thing in their DNA that they played this incredible We are, we are into the, 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 the era of Cavalier football. Cavalier, yeah. Champion Cavalier attacking we play football. Cavalier football. Rangers, on the other hand, basically what we do is we hire a digger that just lobs the ball up front <laughs> this wall of muscle. And it was complete and utter bollocks. But I think it's because, you're right, consciously they weren't, realising that unconsciously I think they were and they were realising not only is this gap enormous it's a chasm we are miles away from it and it's actually only going to get bigger because you know that day in in Parkhead it's a shithole it's a death trap it's Mm. you know Mm. and Ibrox at the time is you know one of the finest stadiums in in Europe and And building a new tier yeah, and we were just on completely different levels. And, and you look at that Rangers team, Stuart McCall, you couldn't have bought him. Um, Mark Haightley, you're not getting anywhere near a player like Mark Haightley. Mo Johnston, but we all know how that worked out. And and it did. Any it just, neutral, any neutral coming up from Sea England yeah. or whatever to watch that, right away they would look at the shapes. As, as Martin said, the whole, look at us, Rangers have got these guys each side, they've got a structure. Even the high ball, no, it's not humped in. The ball's played up there. Big Haley wins the challenge. Johnson intelligently. Yeah. There was just a different class, you know, at that point. That's yeah. it. That is it. And, and you mentioned Martin, the word at the start, alchemy. That's mm-hmm. what it felt like. It felt like this Rangers team were coming together and, and there's chemical reactions happening all over the field as people begin to know each other and begin mm-hmm. to, to... And with this Celtic side, it was more like a jumbo sale. Yeah, well, alchemy is the thing. Alchemy's we were going to get to, but you're right about chemical reactions, ironically given the chemical reaction that's, that's going to take place as the months develop. Um, what was dominant this time was was, McCoy's, uh, was uh, Haley and Johnson. Um, and you know, McCoy's is right to ask questions of of, of Walter um, after that game. That's the thirty first of August, uh, mm. and he says, or he, he writes later, what was just superb. There's no other word for it. He said he understood my frustrations perfectly, but that he didn't want me to leave the club. He appreciated, however, my service to Rangers, and in return, he wouldn't stand in my way if I really wanted to go. But he stressed again that I would get my chance and not to do anything hasty for a couple of weeks. We agreed to sit and think things over for a spell. Walter was as good as his word my opportunity came soon afterwards that night at Tynecastle. That night at Tynecastle would be in the League Cup and that would come after that Celtic game. That's for next week. Gents, before we finish, we need to discuss the events at Tynecastle in the League a couple of weeks before the the only defeat in this opening spell. Um, a freak goal, David. Scott Crabb, effort, speculative, came in from the, the Andy Gorham's left-hand side and somehow ended up in the net. He didn't move. He just completely misjudged it quite early on in that game. Early on, of course, in this this Rangers legend's career. Uh, but a worrying, a worrying game in general and a worrying moment, again, for those who had doubts about that particular transfer. Mm, Scott Crabb. Now, there's a name that mm. if you want to be transported to an early 90s episode of Sports Scene, uh, that will take you back. Yeah, look, it was always mentioned repeatedly throughout this show that going to Tynecastle was certainly no gimme. Um, and you had to be on it to, to get the victory there. Um, I loved going to Tynecastle, especially in this period. It's still a good atmosphere, but back then it was... Yeah, brilliant. Behind the goal. Oh, yeah. oh, it was nuts uh, in, in that stadium. Um, Marshall, Chunky Chicken, uh, etc. But, yeah, like... <laughs> He wasn't he Chris Woods, and at this point, mm. he's not Andy Gorham yet. So 
it's you know what's there uh and it's always difficult when you have a, such a key position at a big club and a goalkeeper clearly is a big club uh is a pivotal position and it's even harder when you're replacing somebody the fans really liked and as we mentioned didn't want to let go but yeah we did have concerns Gorham gives away some very uncharacteristic or what will come to be uncharacteristic actually I'm being unfair uncharacteristic for what he'd been at Hibs yeah. as well yeah. mm-hmm. um, he, he's giving goals away and I use that term advisedly because these are errors that you just do not associate with Andy Gorham certainly you know in this in this particular era so uh, look I'll, I'll, I'll have to hold my hands up I, I, I was beginning to wonder you know um is, is he the guy? Is, is he the one? Will we need to look out elsewhere? Will we need to use one of our fancy foreign players on on a goalkeeper? Because you can't have a bad goalkeeper. Again, I go right back to the 86-87 video that championship season, which was my Bible and my blueprint for everything that Rangers should be, even still at this point. And soon as says, you know, we, we used to play Nottingham Forest, they Peter Shelton. If mm-hmm. you have a good yeah, goalkeeper, yeah. you take it from there. So at this point, I am slightly concerned because the window saves aren't happening yet. Mm. The match-winning displays, which we will all, you know, which we all know, haven't happened yet. Um, but the mistakes have, and yeah, uh, <laughs> Woods didn't do things like this. So. I think it's probably interesting as well to maybe mention that we had sort of grown up. Um, the, the Scottish goalkeeper was a term for joke, really. Yeah, yeah. And and culturally, we'd been sort of raised to think of Scottish goalkeepers as, as almost being a, a member on Saint Greaves every week. Yeah. They would they would criticise. So yeah, there were concerns. And the one who had maybe raised that bar, Jim Layton, in the last decade, had by that time. Turned himself into a Cup one. final and the yeah, uh, World Cup as well. Alan, just very briefly, were you at Tinkoff that day? Can you remember any sense of angst and tension as to this boy, this boy won't do? Because you can just imagine. There's mileage in, by the way, if for anyone who has the time to, to be a, a Rangers Twitter account tweeting as live from 1986 onwards by the way because some uh, some of the reactions to um games like this would have been would have been insane i think yeah people make mistakes all over the park and we always say it if the keeper makes it but this one I, I from i think from memory it was like right early on in the game yeah it, it was, was like a, minutes, yeah. it, it was like i suppose if we were playing golf it'd be drawing it but it, basically it was starting way out for the right hand side but he completely misjudged it and Right away, it was like, what the hell? And as David said, because we had been that comfortable with Big Woods too. And then obviously there'll be some other ones that will come up. I think that's what got me in the next so many weeks. There'll be some other ones that were clearly on him too, both European and domestically. And fortunately, things turned around and ultimately became, you know, the Andy Gorham that we all know. But certainly during the first few months of that season, it was like a can we no get Woods back or could we get somebody else? Because, And I don't know whether the guy was just putting too much pressure on himself as well. I don't know, because he had been good, obviously, at Hibs and, you know, some, you know the other. I don't know whether it's this learning to play at Rangers too and all that goes with it. Yeah. 
But no, I distinctly remember at the time, what the hell. But as I say, I think what annoyed me too was in the next month or so, there, I think there was another three or four real major clangers, you know. I think even the Hibs semi-final and things. But yeah, uh, uh, I ultimately, and as I say, if it had been a player, we've known some Rangers legends who've taken months and months yep. to, I mean, you're talking about Lundstrom, he's not in the legend yet, but when you think him, but even the likes of Ian Ferguson's and some others, and it's taken them literally months yep. uh, to actually get up to it, it just all seemed to come and obviously it would have added to his I think his confidence as well would clearly have taken a hint to Martin, yeah. It certainly did. Right gents, we're off and running in another season, thank you Alan. You're welcome, enjoyed that one. Thank you Davey, back to your bed son. Aye, I, I'd go further and say you're off and running and if ever there's a, a a season that's a two season. I think it's this. Do you know what I, yeah, I, I do? I, I see mm-hmm. these two years as very much one story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm looking forward to listening to the other ones. I'm looking forward to doing the other ones. It's, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful period in being a Rangers supporter. Uh, and it's, it, it, and we've cleared the bad bit. Yeah. <laughs> Stuart McCall made his debut. Yeah, Stuart McCall made his debut at Tencastle that day, and he felt the full wrath of Walter Smith at half time, <laughs> setting out the uh, standards that he expected. He said, "You know, Everton, that would have been something to you know to build on." Um, but at Rangers, you had to win every week, home or away, to be classed as successful. And although Rangers obviously recovered immediately that win at Parkhead and they ended the month only a point behind Hearts and Aberdeen that Gorham blunder was a sign that Smith's new signings especially as goalkeeper were going to take some time to adjust the abuse was raining down on me said Gorham what a waste of money that was just the Rangers fan singing not Hearts it can wreck you for Gorham and Smith things were about to get a lot worse until next time bye for now Podcast Network.